It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at seaboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at seaboc.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lokabaugh, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. In addition to cboc.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at turnboot.com. If you're in or getting into the IO psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking to jumpstart your career and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Welcome everyone to another episode of Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. Today we're gonna be talking about how to identify and defeat counterproductive work behaviors. Tom Bradshaw is unable to join us today. So today you're gonna realize how good of a job he actually does and how he makes so easy since I will be leading the discussion. We're going to start out with we're going to do a poll and the poll is up now. Please list as many counterproductive work behaviors as you can think of. I'm going to leave this up for a while. Uh, you can text your vote in case you can't see the entire screen. You can text your vote to 757-941-5391 or at digitaljoyengage.com number 13971. So, list those they're going to pop up it'll give us some interesting things that we can talk about that are directly related obviously to the topic today what i'm going so think about those and what i'm going one of the reasons that we're doing this is our we had a trio podcast that we did maybe five or six episodes ago maybe episode i don't know let's say 70 70 and about productivity and that was, that was one of our most downloaded episodes. So I think this helps. However, counterproductive work behaviors, when you look at them being researched, their research, counterproductive work behaviors, CWB, these are actually work behaviors that are, you know, when you look at the research and how they're talked about in organizations, there are these, so we're going to talk about these in three different uh, modalities. Counterproductive work behaviors as they sit are intentional work behaviors that are done by disengaged or upset employees, kind of in a way to sabotage the organization, you know, doing things wrong. Um, They can be, you know, theft, you name it. So, but we're also going to talk about counterproductive work behaviors that are not intentional, that you know, you're an employee, you seem to have these habits, but your habits seem to be affecting other people. So what are those unintentional? So we'll think about intentional, unintentional. And then we're also going to make sure that we put things into the bucket of what are our own counterproductive work behaviors, just in terms of our own productivity, just in terms of our own, um, what what am I doing on a day-to-day basis that's taking me more time to correct when I make a mistake uh, procrastination. We'll talk about efficiency and those kinds of things. So we're really, it's a lot to pack into a, to an hour, but we're very good at doing that. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we have these three buckets and when we speak and who, you know, when we, when people raise their hand and people are speaking, try to identify whether you're talking about the intentional counterproductive, the unintentional counterproductive, or the personal counterproductive, or even all, all of the above. So, First, we, you know, we've got lack of productivity. Some, some of the things are starting to pop up. We've got lack of productivity, aggression, lack of civility, tardiness, vandalism, theft, and complaining to customers. That's, yeah, complaining to customers, that'll, that'll kill your company brand. And these other things in terms of complaining in the workplace and about your workplace, that can kill your employer brand as well. So I'm going to keep this up. Actually, I'm going to 
put this down, but you guys can still uh, go in and add to this, but I'm simply just going to stop sharing screen for the time being so that I can get back and see a little bit of a fuller, more full view, but please go ahead and continue to respond to those. And who wants to be, I'm, I'm going to need uh, Linda Ann. I'm going to call on you. So if there's something in the chat or something I'm missing or something I need to come back to, will you please interrupt me and, and let me know? Tom has these just inherent moderation skills. He can just do this without even thinking, I need, I need help. I need help. So thank you, Linda Ann. Um, so first off, how do we identify these counterproductive work behaviors? Uh, Dr. Martha, I see you have your hand up. Let's go ahead and go to you. Do I? Yes. <laughs> well, it's a matter of awareness. If an organization doesn't recognize that counterproductive behaviors are even a thing or a possibility within that organization, then they're already halfway sunk. So being aware, being engaged is very important. <clears throat> there are certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, things that an organization can do proactively from even before a person is hired during the hiring or, or screening process to try and minimize the number of people who would be likely to engage in counterproductive types of behaviors. But you will never escape that completely. There will always be someone. So it's very important, in my opinion, on this topic to be aware and engaged with your workforce. If you are in the ivory tower and not paying any attention, um, then you're going to be missing a lot of things. The other thing that I think is important here is also having some good, honest communications with your customers. Uh, from my own experience, I've seen a couple of different instances where um, disgruntled employees complained endlessly to any customer who would listen. And the organization was unaware of this for years. And as you can imagine, that was quite damaging. But because um, in one instance, for example, because that customer was um, related or, or, or uh, doing business rather with that organization for such a long time, he listened to these complaints with a grain of salt, if you will. But the question always remained, well, how many other customers did we lose because we assumed they weren't around for other reasons, but perhaps that was the reason. So being aware, being, you know, in, in good communications with the employees and with your customers too. I like that because you're putting, you're adding in the customers. So now you're starting to talk, you know, who is all affected by this. Let's go over to Joe. Joe, we're unable to hear you, but it looks like you're not on mute. All right, let's go over to Linda Ann then. How do we start to how do we start to identify these particular you know counterproductive behaviors? And once we start to identify them, you know, then we talk about Linda Ann. You're big on responsibility and whose responsibility it is. So you might want to take that angle. You know, I, I honestly, I thought that this was going to be more about how p individual people can be more productive. And, and so this is a different take on what I expected to be talking about today. So that's, um, but it's, it's important because it's about how, how much are you really paying attention to your employees? You know, even in just general conversations um, and productivity and are they meeting the results that you you need them to to meet can give you an indication as to how engaged and productive they are or how disengaged they are and do they really want to actually even be there and one of the ways you can even get a um, a temperature check is are they participating in the things that you have going on in the organization if you have low participation rates in different things, that's a real red flag um, to what's going on in your organization and how people are engaged with each other. And one of the things that, that Dr. Martha had mentioned was the ivory tower. And if you don't have people coming into your, quote, open door, you know, people are really big about saying, well, I have an open door policy and nobody's coming in, red flag. Um, 
because people don't feel comfortable talking to you. And if you don't have a situation where people are comfortable saying, this isn't working for me, then then if they can't say it to you, they're going to say it to somebody else. So you need to look at, you know, are you getting that communication, that voluntary communication from people? And if you're not, then uh, either you have an extremely happy workforce or <laughs> um, there's a there's a problem going on because people aren't comfortable communicating. It sounds almost like, you know, when you look at personal relationships, we look at the cold shoulder effect. When, some, when someone has slighted someone, here we're talking about when the company has slighted someone or when the, the person feels slighted by their, maybe their boss or by someone else, they, they clam up and they close up. And those are the kinds of people that, okay, look, so that's how we can start to identify is who used to be really engaged who used to be, you know, getting back to back quickly, who used to be the ideas person and as, you know, maybe having a conversation with them and starting to ask those questions, because a lot of times it's about prevention too. We want to make sure that, look, we set the record straight. We're able to share, here's a different perspective on you felt this way. Um, and you felt this way because here's the situation and here's a different perspective on it, or this was actually my intent, but it, 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 uh, it went wrong. So you can start to prevent people doing things, you know, especially in terms of, of sabotaging. So we can, we can, uh, you know, that said, we're able to take this conversation because there's a lot of people that will be tuning into the podcast to say, okay, what can I do personally to be more productive in my own space throughout the day? So we can definitely attend to that too. I see Joe, let's see if you, we can hear, I'm sorry, Linda, Ann, you had I just wanted, I wanted to respond to that. The other thing that you can really do is look at people. It depends on your you, the structure of your environment, you know, and the kind of workforce you're working with. But if you're sitting in meetings and people are not engaging even in your meetings because you haven't allowed them to be heard and they've shut down. So if you're as a facilitator or a leader in a meeting and you put something out there and you say, well, what do you think of that? And nobody says anything, then that's a red flag as well, because they've obviously don't feel that you really want to hear what they have to say. So having some, if you wanted to fix that, having somebody come in and observe the dynamics in meetings would be a really, a very revealing situation because um, yeah, people, again, if it's not a safe environment, then they're going to say things to other people and not you. Dead on. And that's one of, that's actually one of the counterproductive work behaviors that we look at in research is, is somebody creating an environment that isn't one of, of psychological safety in the workplace. Joe? Still unable to hear you, Joe. That's okay. We're going to go over to Lee. Yeah. You know, this is uh like so many of our topics, this passes so many we've talked about previously. I mean, you know, the, the communication and the expectations and, uh, you know, so some, some of the things, you know, things like social media and whatever else, you know, what is your policy on that and, and how clear is it? And then, uh, you know, then there's things like the wall of silence, you know, sometimes it's not that the people you know, want, it's that they can't. So the open door policy only works if you can get to the door. and if you've got a supervisor that through whatever intimidation, fear, whatever it is, doesn't allow you to go you know, outside the, the command of the work, um, then you can have lots. I mean, I've seen several organizations where there was serious dysfunction, but nobody knew because the people in the middle had this, this uh, block to where it wasn't getting to people who could actually make change. And then you get to the ivory tower, as was mentioned earlier, that people up top they weren't coming down so they never saw it they never got around that wall to see something going on and you know and it persists so you know sometimes if you've had if you come into an organization and the, uh, the productivity has stayed fairly level you may not even realize that the productivity is not where it should be and so sometimes your your baseline is you know, telling you the story because it's, it's been a problem for so long so after, after a while, it just becomes one of those things that becomes commonplace and you don't even realize that there are these counterproductive behaviors going on because there is complacency and it's acceptance. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, the way we've always done it, you know, and when somebody like us comes in and says, oh, hey, you know, if you cut out five of these 25 steps, you can cut out 30 minutes of your process and somebody is shocked. How could that possibly 
uh, be a thing. So, uh, yeah, that just it happens a lot. Thanks, Lee. Martha, over to you, Dr. Martha. So to add to what Lee was saying, the importance of having clear um clear rules in place. What are what, what does this organization do and say and expect in terms of behaviors? If there are no clear policies and if rules are not enforced, then that can be confusing and that can allow even the smallest of discretions to then become uh, more problematic. So if nobody knows what is acceptable, first of all, and then if behavior does happen and nobody addresses it appropriately, appropriately, then we're looking at a snowball potentially. In addition to policies, we also have to consider the company's culture. If the company's culture is completely different from what the policies are suggesting, in other words, there's no follow through, then that's even more confusing. You can have the most beautiful comprehensive policy written down, but if the culture is completely the opposite of that, then it doesn't matter. And then lastly, a point that I wanted to bring up, there is always a chance that someone within your workforce will never be happy no matter what. You can give them a bucket of money and tell them they don't have to do a thing. And all they will do is complain that the money came in the wrong bills, right? So there are always those people out there who will never be happy. But knowing that doesn't excuse the organization from uh, not following through, not being engaged, not being involved, and not addressing the issue. So I like that. What do you say to the, because there will be plenty of people that listen to this and say, what we need are fewer policies and more interaction, more you know, un- understanding and more communication that can result in empathy and really getting to the bottom of, you know, whether it be tardiness, whether it be making other people feel like they don't belong, whether it be, you know, <laughs> I, a little hard to finish my sentence with theft and sabotage, but you get the point that I'm saying in terms of, what do you get, you know, people are saying, look, we have all these policies on it, or what if the policies are what are creating this? Because there's too much red tape, there's no wiggle room. What, do you, what might you say to that argument? Well, if there are too many policies or policies that are creating uh, red tape or, or blocks of some sort, then it's time to uh, revisit the policies, right? More policies aren't necessarily the answer. It's the follow through. What do we do with these policies? What's the value of these policies? Are we getting anything out of them? Um, so I'm, I'm going to reference, I think is one of the Harry Potter movies where all they kept doing is putting up new rules on the walls and then the walls were just covered with rules and none of that meant anything because it was just stuff on the walls. It's the same thing. If you have too many policies, the management is completely disengaged. The um, employees don't feel like they can really open up and talk to anybody. Then things that are simply in writing, but not part of the real experience are meaningless. It's time to revisit the policies, simplify your policies and engage in follow through and talk to people. Communication is such a simple solution to so many different things. But for some reason, a lot of companies are really lacking in real honest communications as part of the experience. Agree. And that, that triggered a thought. It makes me think, so we talk about communication a lot. We talk about, yes, it should be easy. And we also talk about, you know, we've had so many conversations about how leadership is not easy. Some people are thrown into leadership positions and they really, they're not good leaders, right? They were good at something. So how do we do that? And there's a couple of steps that people can take because we want to look at, okay, how do we actually do this? So how do we identify, you know, how do I identify and then how do we attend to counterproductive work behaviors and others, starting with that type of conversation that Martha was mentioning and something that you can do, you know, let's say that you have an, an employee who's, who's constantly late, or even let's, let's take a harder one. Let's say that you know that you have an employee and you know, they sabotaged a, uh, a project. Let's say, you know, that they, there was a deadline and they sent it to a, a client late, just out of, just out of spite. So that's a pretty big deal. So how do you attend to that? We don't need, you know, we don't need to go soft. So so take, you know, take my, like, if this is a hardness level of seven, feel free to go to a nine or or down to a five in terms of the, the way I'm saying this, but it's a very simple starting of a conversation where it's, it seems like you had some trouble with this project. 
and then silence and let that other person talk. And they'll start to give you some, some information and you'll be able to tell, I mean, you'll be able to look at body language. You'll be able to look, you know, understand what they say, because the first thing is, is you don't want to jump to conclusions. You don't want to think, you know, you might think, and you might have a gut feeling. I know I would bet money on the fact that they did this on purpose, but what would happen if you simply went with that and said, you know, it seems like you had some trouble with this project and let them you're, you're basically your whole goal is to turn them from being defensive and turn them into being helpful. So anything that you, you know, any question with why, like, why did you turn this in late? Bad idea. You're just going to get them defensive and they're just going to, what, 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 and then they're going to give excuses. But if you just start off with something a little softer, you're going to start to get some information. And then that's when you can start to follow up with some, either some good questionings and repeating what they say. What if, for example, they say, well, I wasn't given the resources that I need to get this in on time. You might say resources and stop talking. It's one word. All you're doing is saying what they're saying. So you're doing two things at once. You're allowing that person to feel heard and understood. You're also giving the opportunity to dig a little deeper, give you more information, but also you're, you're going with this model more of the person with the problem is the person with the solution. And if you work this the right way and believe and there are, I could keep going and going and going. There are very specific techniques and tactics that are, that would be used to put, to, to finish this conversation and really lead this to a place better than you, than it would, would have normally gone. Hey, get in touch with me. If anyone wants some, some help with that, that's what I do for a living. I love it. That being said, that's, that's one way with these personal conversations. So start off with a, with a simple statement, go at it, not from the point of an investigator, but go at it to, from a point of you're trying to understand what the employees ex experience during. You're also being very aware of how the employee is experiencing your particular interaction. And I say this often because it's important at the end of every action that's medium to low stakes situation with anyone in your life. You should be able to write a thousand to two thousand word page. There, there goes my uh, automatic Siri going off or whatever. You should be able to write a one thousand to two thousand word page. Pa uh, I'm sorry, paper on this is what that person is experiencing. This is what their perspective is. Because when we go in looking for information, all we're trying to do is validate our point, validate our perspective, and our goal is. What's my goal in this conversation? To find out why X, Y, Z. But if we go into the conversation thinking, I'm going to be helped, it's, it's odd and it's going to feel weird and uncomfortable. But a lot of times in life, the good things happen because of that. You go, instead of going, my goal is to get what, I, to find out what happened. Instead, your goal is to be helpful to this employee by doing X, which he or she will appreciate. My goal is to go into this conversation by helping the employee feel heard and understood understand what the roadblocks were, which they will appreciate. And we're talking about like, we're not excluding the fact that this could have been done on purpose. When led the right way, you will find out if there's animosity, feelings of slighted, being slighted, et cetera. That will come out when you lead this effective conversation. And believe me, this conversation usually doesn't last more than 10 minutes. It's not gonna take your entire day. So there's no need to procrastinate just go and have the little conversation. Linda Ann. I, I appreciate the segue there. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to mention, it, it, the, what you described is not just a situation where you're doing investigation and trying to solve a problem. When I would work with um, managers and helping them to build their management skills, one of the things that I would say to them as a, a key aspect to just remember as you go into any conversation um, in a management role is <clears throat> to find out more information, right? Gather the information first before you start talking to them about whatever it is that you think you're there for. And that is, you know, you ask them, you know, help me understand or tell me more about so that you can open those doors. Those are the real easy um, ways to frame it, but then it gives that, them the opportunity to speak and it gives you a really clear picture of what you need to address and how you might best address it. So always opening the, opening the door initially to gather more information before you step through, um, I think is really a key to effective 
management process and and problem solving process. I, I like yeah. that. You're, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Good. Go ahead. I was going to say, it makes me think of really the difference between qualitative and quantitative research, right? With quantitative, you're going in with a hypothesis and you're trying to prove or disprove it. Otherwise, you know, qualitative, you're, it's open in discovery. There's a phenomenon that we don't know much about. So we have to have questions to figure out what this phenomenon is before we can even start to, um, you know, start to measure things. So I like that you're going in with it with an open-minded approach rather than saying it's either this or this, because you, then you exclude other possibilities. Exactly. Because sometimes if you go in and just go start addressing things right off the bat without gathering that information first, you've stepped into a, a minefield, you know, and you could be setting off mines all over the place. So really understanding what you're working with first is a key aspect in any, whether it's a problem solving or a management situation. The other thing I wanted to, to bring up was um, one of the most destructive things I think people can say in the workplace is, well, we've always done that it this way, or we've done it this way before, or I've tried that before. And if you want to kill creativity, keep saying that, oh, we've tried that before. And it's it's hard if you've been the person that's that's gone down that path and didn't get anywhere with it and, and it blew up in your face or it just wasn't successful or it died on the vine, whatever that is. What I've done in, in the past in dealing with that is because I didn't want to discourage somebody's enthusiasm to address an issue. I would say we've we attempted that process previously. Here's the roadblock we found, or here's the problem we couldn't get past. So with that in mind, try again and see if you can get past those and give them that particular challenge so they don't get frustrated the same way um, or they know what they might be going into, but to not discourage them, but say, here, think about it in this term. You're listening to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. We'll be right back after this break. Turn boot. The name is not elegant. Neither are the issues that organizations face. Led by a PhD in industrial organizational psychology, you can rest assured that the highest standards and latest in workplace and human behavior science will be used to get your organization results with a tailored plan specific to your workplace needs. Truly helping others, integrity, positive impact, and getting results. That's what we stand for. That's Turnboot Organizational Excellence. Welcome back. You're listening to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. We're going to go over to Lee and then after Lee, anyone feel free, uh, of course, to bounce off of what Lee has to say. And then maybe let, let's switch the conversation over to personal uh, counterproductive work behaviors. How can we be more productive? How can we uh, be less defeatist to ourselves, Lee? Yeah. So um, just to bounce off what Linda Ann said, uh, I've been in situations like that where you know that we've tried this before. And rather than saying, hey, we've done this, I have uh, sat down and said, okay, well, let's talk through it. And then when I know what the issues were when we tried it before and you said, okay, so let's say this happened. How would you, how would you address that and give them the opportunity to think outside the box without shooting them down saying, well, we've done that because sometimes just saying it's been done is enough to shut them down. But if I, if I, if you approach it to where you just ask them about the roadblocks you know have happened, it gives them an opportunity to think outside the box and have a discussion and you can go, oh, wow, I never thought about that. Um, you know, I think it was General Patton who said, tell people what to do, but don't tell them how and they'll, they'll amaze you with their ingenuity. And it's, I have been beating my head against the wall on trying to figure something out. Somebody comes in, takes one step to the left and bam, it happens. Um, you know, and, you know, which is, sometimes a little frustrating when you're like why didn't i think of that but uh you know in general that it, it it's kind of amazing sometimes what people will come up with and uh i mean actually i had somebody here in the office earlier that, that did something had no idea how they did it and basically they did it because they didn't know they couldn't <laughs> and, and it's amazing what sometimes something happens just because they didn't know they you know supposedly couldn't do that um and the other thing that uh with talking to somebody the um, not going in, you know, knowing what happened, but not going in with a preconceived notion. I mean, I got pulled into a lot of discipline boards 
And, you know, I always wanted to know the bare minimum of what we were doing, uh, you know, what the situation was, because I didn't want to have a preset thing because I wasn't the person supervisor. And so I would ask questions that the supervisor didn't think of. And often it turned out to be something completely different than what we thought it was. And so a lot of times the disciplinary board turned into being basically an intervention to where we're helping that employee through something that we didn't even know was going on that was really the root cause of what happened. And, uh, you know, definitely better than having to throw the book at somebody. That's the key. So the key is that the thing that really stood out to me is Lee said, asking the questions that people weren't asking. Asking asking good questions is one of the most important things that we can do at any given time. Um, speaking of, of asking good questions, whenever we're facing the, these different challenges or we're facing now oh, we've done it, that that's we, we've always done it a certain way or whatever it may be. There are so many. I'm going to give you a phrase. And this is a phrase that is so helpful in so many different situations. Um, so let's say you face that and they say your idea. Now we've all, always done it this way. But you're, you've been pulled onto this project. You, let's say you've been put onto a project to find a new way to do things or to take an old way that were, uh, of things that were done and refine the process. But all your ideas are being shut down. What happens if you say, when you put me on this project, what did you have in mind? It's very simple. When you hired me, what did you have in mind? It's very, very simple. But that person then is forced to think thoughtfully. The answer can't be, I don't know. The answer can't be, well, I don't want to talk about it. The answer has to be a thoughtful response. And that's what we want. And that can completely change the dynamic and the direction of, of any conversation. And it can be used in you know any type of situation. What, what Lee mentions about, uh, I think you said General Patton said, you know, you tell someone what to do, but not necessarily how to do it. Let's say just you take this on a lighter level, you know, a simple task, you know, you, you ask your teenager to, to mow the lawn and they're not doing exactly how you like it, but the teenager is mowing the lawn. And the teenager says, when you asked me to mow the lawn, what did you have in mind? You're not going to say, well, to do it exactly the way that I do it, you should have been studying my every move. So, you know, there's different levels that you can think about this in terms of its effectiveness. But sometimes when we break it down to the actual, to the, to the absolute ridiculous, we can start to see how it can be implemented in our own lives. Linda, Anne, Linda, Anne, you're now on mute. You were unmuted. It reminds me of a story that, that um, people use when they talk about the, uh, I've always done something this way. It's kind of a, a family's making their holiday dinner and the mom gets the ham. She cuts off the back end of it, puts it in the pan and cooks it. And then the next generation, they get the, the ham. The times have gone on, they cook, cut off the back end of the ham, put it in the, the, the oven and they cook it. And eventually somebody says, why do we cut off the back end of the ham? Well, great grandma didn't have a pan big enough for to fit the whole ham. And you think about, well, that doesn't really, isn't really the problem anymore. So that just depicts to me um, in very kind of silly way that, you know, you have to really rethink why are we actually doing things the way that we're doing them? I just wanted to make a comment again to something that that was addressed earlier, and that was, you know, having too many rules in the workplace. And I think that it's important for people to under have a, a blanket understanding of what's expected to them uh, of them. And when I taught school, uh, people would go every year, teachers would go through the exercise of let's make up the classroom rules and have all these things and whatever and specify, you know, the different behaviors. And I would never do that. There was only one classroom rule. And what it was that you didn't, you weren't allowed to interfere with someone else's opportunity to learn, right? That covered a whole lot of behaviors. And if you think about that, that could work in the workforce as well, where the expectation is that you support the effort for the organizational success or whatever it is, so that you don't have to have 87 rules saying, no, you can't do this, you can't do this in order to achieve that. You just need to communicate that idea of what we are all here for in a positive manner. I, li- I like that. And I like the way that you're able to use story. And I like the way that you're able to use example and perspective. That allows us to do something. It's called elaborative rehearsal, where we're able to take 
you know, what we know and stories from the past and incorporate new material. And we tie that into something we already know. And it allows us to remember things and better and more easily apply them as well. So what about counterproductive behaviors in our own day to day? What are we doing uh, that, you know, if you can't, so in the chat, maybe just list, you know, either you or speaking for a friend, what are some of the counterproductive work behaviors that you engage in? And we, we do them every, you know, go, go ahead and uh, wow, there's a lot. I see a lot popping in the, uh, the chat already. Let's get uh, a lot more. And while you guys are, are typing those in, I do want to point out something that Joe said with um, organizations reactively look to solve counterproductive work behaviors that have occurred instead of proactively hindering them from occurring. And there, that's, it's, it's so true. And the number one thing that I usually focus on is how do we create an emotional attachment to organization, right? It's the, it's the, the strongest form of commitment that one can have to a, an organization, to a work group. And how do, we, how do we create that? And if that question is constantly asked by managers and leaders with the organizations, you can go a long way in terms of preventing the counterproductive work behaviors and also getting your employees to give that discretionary effort, that extra effort that they don't necessarily have to give to the organization. So perfectionism has shown up as a counterproductive work behavior. And this is interesting. So when we look at personality types, perfectionism, there are some people who are do it and get it done. It's good enough. There are other people who are, I, I can't do, I can't do it unless it's done. And then there are people who have that inner struggle where I need it done right away, but I also need it done perfectly. And then we have that inner struggle and it is, uh, it's one of those, a blessing and a curse. Martha, Dr. Martha, you have your hand up. So perfectionism makes me think uh, back to a situation where I was hiring for a position and I had a very um, highly intelligent, highly qualified candidate, uh, but he told me flat out during our conversation, during the interview, that he has this intrinsic need to finish a task or a project from beginning to end without interruptions. And the environment in which I was working was, um, I called it interruptions are us, because there was no such a thing as an uninterrupted task or project. So I knew this highly qualified, otherwise highly qualified uh, person would be miserable at his job and would not end up being an asset to the organization and would not enjoy his experience there. And I ended up not hiring him for that reason alone, because I did not want that experience for him. And I did not want the experience uh, for the person managing him. Why didn't you ever get anything done? That kind of experience for them. So perfectionism, I thought was an excellent example that made me think to my own experience with it. That's that's <laughs> I, I love I, I love the examples that come, that come out of this because these are things that have actually happened and we can start to speak to them. These these are things that are occurring in the real world. And Joe says in the chat, look, we've got a trade off between perfectionism and speed. And most projects fall, he says, fall somewhere in between. Linda Ann says, I'm a recovering perfectionist. It makes me think of so perfectionism makes me think of a couple of things. So, so one, we look at, uh, it, it has a lot, it has some, some bit to do with, with indecision. And I, it, I've, I've gone back to this quote by Colin Powell a long time ago, where it, it, something to the effect of indecision has cost uh, American businesses and Americans billions and billions and billions of more dollars and minutes than a, uh, an imperfect or a bad decision. When we make a decision, we get to figure out what the, what the result's going to be, and we start to work on something. At least we start to work on something. And then the, then the idea is you can adjust, and you can adapt, and you can be agile at that point. And that make a decision and go with it. I'm on the far end where I do that too often, just personality-wise. Um, and there are, other, there are other people who get stuck and you know, what might not start that project that was their, their, their dream or that project that they really wanted to work on or start that particular hobby, whatever it may be, just simply because of indecisiveness. Um, there's another quote by, I used to think it was Einstein, but it's not, it's by, um, 
I can't, uh, it could be Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson, something to the effect of life is full of experiments and the more experiments we make, the better. Uh, I like that philosophy. I, you know, live by that philosophy and I think it, it makes life interesting. Another thing. So Linda, and uh, Martha, you told the story of somebody who said, look, I need to, you know, be able to work on one thing and just completely do it. I think, I think doing that, it's good because you can get into a state of flow. So I'm not discounting this. I'm not discounting a state of flow. There are things that happen though, when we break things up that allow us to be better and create better things. There is a, there have been studies that have been done where if you're learning a task, it's best to break things up and learn part of it, maybe even half of it or in threes, not all at once. And the, the example that I remember was, you know, if you're, if you're coaching a football team and you're teaching them a certain drill, teach them half of the drill one way, one day, and maybe the next half of the drill the next day, because the way we encode and we process information, we're actually every, every experience that you have, every time you learn something, you actually change the, change the physical nature of your brain, right? Your neurons connect to different neurons and you grow different synapses and all this very interesting stuff. But when you give that time in between, you allow your brain to start to encode what you've learned differently and also start to pre-problem solve. And I mean, we could even get into, you know, dream theories like threat simulation theory, where, you know, if you've ever had these dreams where you're fighting or you're arguing with someone, there's dream theories that say, look, we're going over these possible scenarios. Our brains are doing this automatically while we sleep so that we can start to test if I do this, X might happen. If I do this, X might happen based on this threat. So there's a lot that goes on when we give ourselves uh, time away. There's also something called an incubation period. And that I've learned just from my own uh, testing myself, that an incubation period can be as small as eight seconds, but give it an hour, give it a day, give it a week. An incubation period is when you, you know, you've had you're like, oh, I can't remember this person's name. And then you try and try and try and you can't. And then three seconds and then three minutes later just pops into your head. That's an incubation period. I remember when iPhones first came out, I was playing this. I thought it was, the, I was like, oh, there's this parking lot game where I have to get the bus out of this little parking lot, you know, game on my phone. And I remembered trying to figure it out and I, I couldn't figure out how to get this bus out of the parking lot because it was jammed with all these other cars. And I thought, ah, what the heck? I'll try an incubation period. I looked up from my phone. And as much as I could stand that, I think it was eight seconds because I was like, I can solve this. And I, as soon as I looked back at my phone, I saw how to get the bus out of the parking lot. So an incubation is really just taking your mind off of something and completely letting it go. And your mind can do powerful things. Most people I talk to say, hey, I, when I wake up first thing in the morning, I have a new idea on how to solve this problem that I had that I've been working with for a month. Most people have their aha moments in the shower. Oh, boom. Right. See, and that's where and it's so true. Um, so there, there's different things, you know, when we talk about making a decision and avoiding perfectionism and all these examples that are being shared, uh, Linda, Ann, I see your hand up. You're on, you're on mute. Oh, on that, that train, one of the things that I have, um, have heard, you know, I don't know about you. I have a couple friends that we all are always ordering books and and you're trying to make sure you keep up on the latest book and and if you attend too many webinar webinars you've got you know a list of books to read anyway um one suggestion was that when you're reading don't read more than 10 pages a day because and and i that resonates for me because i and probably the reason that I speak in stories a lot of times is when I learn, and I love virtual learning because of this, is because I can stop it, integrate it into what I already know, and then it becomes part of my knowledge base, right? So I need time to think about what I've read and integrate it into my knowledge base in order for me to take it away. Otherwise, it's just, a, you know, 5, 10, 15 ideas, and I never integrate all of that information. I love that. And I'm looking, I'm looking at it. This is one of the best chats we've had uh, in a while. I love what Lee says, an, imp an imperfect plan actually executed will always beat a perfect planned plan that isn't. And I love that. Joe says quite frequently, 
what I see is that people don't know when to make fast decision. I love this versus spending time thinking over decision. Oftentimes, very risky decisions are made too quickly, while very safe decisions end up taking a lot more time where, where any old solution will be fine. There's a book by, I can't remember the name, but it's called The Road Less Stupid. The book is called The Road Less Stupid. And the author speaks a lot about thinking time. And, and every day, at least for 45 minutes, we'll just sit in a chair with a problem and think with a notebook. And he mentions uh, Warren Buffett and somebody else. I might be uh, Mark, uh, Mark, uh, Mark Cuban. Is that the name? Yep. Might be him too. But it, it's one of the most effective things because you can spend that 45 minutes, it's like the BP oil spill. You can spend that time up front to make sure that things aren't going to go wrong and fix things versus having a disaster. So I like what Joe says in terms of, look, we have to also recognize when a decision is going to be that important where we have to spend some quiet, creative thinking time just with that particular decision to see what the per, what the the uh, avenues might be, the different modalities to execute might be very, very important. Uh, somebody also wrote, I have a friend who keeps a waterproof notebook in the shower with a, probably dry erase markers maybe on it. It's great. That's not a bad idea. I'm sure there's a magnet system that <laughs> can be used for that. But yeah, ideas are great. It makes me think of uh, when Kramer and Seinfeld was trying to save time and he started cooking his meals in the shower. I guess there's a lot of things that you can do in the shower. Hey, it's your own space. So, uh, ooh, we have somebody who said, I love this because it validates something that I said, and who doesn't love that? Megan says, incubation periods are no joke. I'm exhausted, but I think I've solved all my advanced analytics problems in my sleep. <laughs> yes, literally dreaming of Excel. And we wake up. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've woken up and all of a sudden I'm taking a note on my phone about this and I have to make sure I you know, get it and transfer it. So yes, incubation periods are no joke. Megan, thank you for the validation that I'm not totally crazy. Dr. Martha, you have your hand up. I will second what Megan said. You're not crazy. That's, that's brain science. Uh, that's one of the many reasons why we need sleep is because that's when the brain gets to process all kinds of things, whether it's problems or stressors or whatever the case may be. Uh, that's one of the many, many reasons why sleep is recommended. Um, something else that I wanted to say is um, as far as counterproductive behaviors, um, technology, which can make our life um, so convenient and so wonderful and fun, but it can also rob us of our time by wasting it. So I think technology, as helpful as it can be, it's a double-edged sword in that it can um, it can lead to a lot of counterproductive type of behaviors from social media to YouTube videos to whatever, whatever, you know, whatever you, you like to engage or people like to engage in. So that would be um, an example that I wanted to bring up. Cat videos, they're the best. I can spend hours watching those. Yeah, thanks, Lee. <laughs> thanks for letting my secrets out, Lee. <laughs> uh, Linda Ann, your hand is up. Well, on that, on that um, uh, train, one of the things that's um, important to understand is when you are aware of the fact that you've got a behavior pattern that is counterproductive and wasting your time and not letting you get to that project because you're watching cut videos or whatever it is, um, it's important to identify what's triggering you, whether it's because you have your phone right by your bed and you stay in bed a half hour looking at them before you get up and do anything or whatever it is, is it's important to identify those triggers or cues and then change the behavior. In other words, don't just say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's not going to work as well as saying, okay, I can do that. I just can't do it at X time. Right. So put your phone in a different place or whatever it is um, and, and, disconnect those triggers and cues from your normal behavior pattern so that you can break um, that cycle. And you mentioned behavior patterns, which leads me, you know, we're talking about habits in that regard. There, there's books I want to mention. I'm terrible with authors, but I can tell you the name books, the, you know, Atomic Habits, Habits. It's a very good book. Um, the 
Power of Habit, I think is the other book. And there's another book I highly recommend. It's called The Willpower Instinct. It is such a good book that teaches you everything you need to know based on science, based on their studies in there. It's not a dry read by any means, but reading this Willpower Instinct book will give you insight into some of the behaviors that you have. It will help with procrastination. It is such a powerful and, and exciting read. It's called uh, The Willpower Instinct. Um, I'll think of another perhaps, but now I see Lee has his hand up. And your mic is off. Oh, wrong button. Um, so yeah, with the, uh, as far as like neural pathways and all that kind of stuff, just to, to jump into the science for a moment, you know, there's research that shows that, you know, killing habits or changing habits is actually extremely difficult and most of the time fails. So what is more effective is to create a new habit that subsumes the other habit. So, you know, as far as the phone or whatever else, well, don't say, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. Go, well, I'm going to change my behavior by I'm going to create a new one. I'm going to do, you know, X instead of Y and then eventually Y fades away because you created the neural pathways that reinforce that new behavior. Um, and I tell you that, was, you know, finding that out was, was kind of uh, shocking in my own life and how how much easier well i can do this now as you know after failing over and over again to get rid of certain uh you know habits i was trying to get rid of um and one thing you know is talking about the personal uh stuff you know i i have uh you know add and you know for me it's not a it's not a lack of attention it's that i can't multitask i i hyper focus and so when i change focus i completely change focus so you know, uh, you know, when Dr. Martha was talking about someone who needed to complete something from beginning to end, I don't, I don't have that, but I, I have, I know, and I have to recognize that if I get di directed, that I'm going to have to move back and get back to where I was. And you know, once realizing that that struggle is there, it makes it a lot easier. But it does derail me a lot of times because somebody comes up with something urgent, and then all of a sudden later this afternoon, I'm like, oh man, I was going to do that today. Um, so that's, you know, some of my own personal there. It's amazing the different, you know, there's, I see, I see, I see so many connections, so many connections. So we all, we're all facing these issues of, you know, work behaviors and, and productivity, and they're all connected and we all have our own little hacks and we all have our little, little suggestions and ideas. And this is another reason why I love getting together is because we, we can learn from other people, um, one, one, I guess, last thing I'm thinking about on uh, procrastination, there is a, oh my gosh, I'm so bad with the names. There's a book called the five second rule. I think um, it's where if you find yourself doing something that's not productive, you just count to five and then you switch. I've done that a couple of times. Sometimes I get to 10, but I'll usually at, at least switch what I'm doing. So any kind of an interruption and like with, like what Lee said with habits, you know, switching a habit to something else, you can also build on that habit. So you might have a, a bad habit, but let's say you do that for less time and then build on that habit, something more productive. The other thing that I have found, and I did, a, I, I'm start, I started to do a write-up on this is if we can, first off for, for procrastination, usually for procrastination, the, if you can just do one step towards what your task is, you just kind of keep going. So let's say that you, let's say that you need to make, you know, you're afraid of making cold calls. You just got a job in sales and you have to make cold calls. Well, you don't have to say, well, I need to make five phone uh, cold calls today. And then you have a hard time doing it. You don't really need to do that. All you need to do is pick up the phone. That's the first step. And then you just say the second step is to dial a number and now you're doing it. So it's find out like whatever that task is that you keep putting off. What's the just first physical thing that you need to do? And that can be very helpful in getting there. The other thing, and this probably isn't a, a popular idea, but I find that some of, I'm a, I'm a, I have to get into the flow. I've got to get energized. And once I go at something, I usually go pretty hard. So there are a couple of things. Uh, there was one thing today that I, that I did, and I've been putting it off for a while, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. But today I, I woke up and I thought, I actually had an idea and I thought now's the time. So I just went, you know, really hard at it and I completed a goal that gives me a sense of fulfillment because I did it. 
So sometimes it's not the worst idea to know that you have to do something, wait, and when the moment hits you, you're going to do a darn good job at it. One other thing I'll mention is with everything that we need to do, find out what part of that will give you a, a sense of fulfillment when you're done and let the fulfillment pull you towards creating it. You might not like working in Excel spreadsheet, but when you're done and you can figure out alarms going off when, when that, when you're, but when you're, as you're creating it, what do you like to do? Do you like to organize? Do you like to work with other people? What part of that particular task gives you a sense of fulfillment? Focus on that. It'll become a pull rather than a push. Uh, Dr. Martha. I like what Lee said about replacing old habits or old behaviors with new ones. If you look at neuroscience, um, you may have, some of you may have heard the uh, saying neurons that fire together, wire together. And so as we are repeating a behavior, we are, um, are more and more neurons are connecting with our brains and we are creating stronger pathways for that behavior. So it's um, a little bit like a car that drives in the same um, space all the time and, and creates these ruts. It's pretty difficult at some point to turn your wheel and get out of that way get out of that direction or change directions. It's the same thing with our behaviors. So if we replace a behavior that we want to change with a different behavior, we are no longer allowing those old neuron co co um, connections to keep growing and reinforcing. So neurons that do not fire, um, they start to separate and move on to different, um, different friends. They find new friends. So that was a very good point that Lee made about replacing a behavior with a new one. Like it a lot. And as we wrap up, Linda Ann, you have your hand raised. Yeah, I have um, just a comment that kind of bridges both what Dr. Martha and you, Jeremy, had said was um, often organizations, not just people, but even organizations don't achieve particular goals because they haven't mapped out the pathway. Right. They don't have the milestones to break that goal down into doable tasks in order to achieve it. And so they, they might have a strategic plan, but they don't have the pathway identified so that somebody can take just that one next step. And that's really, really a key. Love it. Such great uh, insight from everyone here. So as we wrap up, we are going to get our lineup for our June events. So if you have any, any topic ideas for our June weekly events, go to cbock.com slash events. There's a form at the bottom where you can suggest events. And we've done a lot of, of talking and promotion of our CBOC Pathfinder program for those that are starting out in their career or maybe still in school and what their pathway might be. Um, now I'll just share a little bit about our ex. So you, you can also sign up with CBOC as an expert uh, professional member and there's a lot of things there in terms of connection and resources, building your brand, growing your business. You can, you know, when you, when you join as an expert member, you can host your own video channel on cbock.com. You have your own blog. You can do your own uh, podcast work, cookie episodes, and all of these things are shared and, and, and put out to the, to the greater network. So you're building your awareness and you can also do, you know, business resources exchange. You obviously get free access to, to paid events. Um, and what else? It's leading side projects, responding to RFPs and grant opportunities, writing uh, white papers with other CBOC experts, and you can even create and, and sell you know, training courses for either your clients or the IO community. There's uh, an opportunity for sponsorship in terms of brand promotion, and you can also create and host your own group. So you can have your own group on the CBOC website for your clients or for your network that's private to you and private, kind of like a Facebook group. But now, now we're talking about you know a nice private group uh, individually that you can have um, with your uh, with, with, with your CBOC page. So some exciting things going on in that regard. Thank you, everyone. And you can, and anyone listening to this on the podcast, you can get there by going to cbock.com, click on IO start here. If there's a waiting list for that, no worries. Uh, we're getting through uh, as many as soon as we can. Thank you, everybody. Tom, we miss you and we can't wait to have you back next week. See everyone later. Counting out in five, four, three, two, and one.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com.